If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're beginning in verse 22. Actually, verse 12. We find the original Passover and Exodus when the children of God were in Egyptian captivity and after many plagues, the final plague was going to come and the Lord gave the people of God a deliverance. The destroyer was going to come upon the land of Egypt and cut off all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and beast. The Lord told his people that they were to sacrifice a lamb, a pure, spotless, blemishless lamb. That lamb was to die in place of the firstborn, and they were to put the door over the door, and on the sides of their door, and every house that had blood on it would be spared that destruction. And God's people were instructed, in addition to that, that they were to observe this every year as a reminder to their people that they had been bought and redeemed at a price. This, we understand, a lot of the New Testament was pointing uh, to an even greater Passover where a perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb would die for the sins, not of just a few, but of the sins of the world. That's where Mark is bringing us to as we slowly make our way through his gospel. And so Mark picks up in verse 12 of chapter 14. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent to his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will go show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one to another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, as it both speaks to the significance of the Passover that for thousands of years your people observed uh, through the Old Testament and until the coming of Christ, 
And it also speaks of the significance of the Lord's Supper and all that Christ has accomplished for us. May we have a fresh and greater appreciation for all that your Son has done for us. And that His body was broken and His blood shed so that we could be recipients of the new covenant, a covenant where there is forgiveness of sin, full and final pardon. We thank you for that, for apart from the new covenant sacrifice of your Son, dying in our place for our sin, dying on Calvary's hill and rising again for our justification, we would be people without hope. And so we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and all that he has done for us. And we pray that if there are any here this morning that do not have this hope, that they would come to have it. That they would come to have faith in the perfect spotless Lamb, Christ, who is slain for our sins. For this we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So all those centuries, the people of God had been observing the Passover every year as they were able, sacrificing a lamb without spot or blemish. And now, everything that had been pointed toward has come. This is really the last rightful Passover. Celebrated by the one who was the true Passover lamb, the one who would die in the stead of his people, the one who would die to deliver from destruction. And so Jesus, knowing that this is the fi his final night, prepares to observe the Passover. And so we will see first his preparation, both in regards to providence and his planning. We will see the purpose of his Passover, and we will see... The promise of his Passover. So let us consider his preparation. We are told that the disciples had asked in verse 12, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And it's clear that he had planned ahead for this. Everything that he is doing, everything that he is accomplishing is with the end in mind that it's going to end with him being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He has uh, planned, uh, the Father has planned everything in such a, that he would fulfill Scripture. And so he sends the disciples with this instruction which sounds rather unremarkable to us because we don't know the background. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. That sounds completely unremarkable to us. You know, if you see a man carrying a jug of water, you don't think any of it. But it was remarkable in Jesus' time because there is only two reasons that a man would be carrying water. One is that he was a slave, or the other is that he was a scene, a part of a, a special religious community. It, it was very unheard of for men to carry water, which is why, if you remember, in John chapter 4, it was the woman at the well drawing water. It was uh, thought of as women's work to gather up the water. So you, you'd see women ch chugging along with their large things of water for the day. And so it would have been very remarkable for the disciples to find a man carrying water, and yet that was what they were to find. And Jesus, in his 
Omniscience knew exactly when and where and when to send the disciples such that they would find the man carrying in the water. And so he sends them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And so they find it exactly as he had planned. And there they prepare the Passover. An ornate feast is commanded in the Old Testament. And Jesus was faithful to observe all that had been commanded in the Old Testament. And there, as they observe the Lord's Supper, we see the purpose of it. To highlight the betrayal We're told in verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, again, uh, that's something that strikes us as odd, reclining at table. Uh, Don't you mean sitting at the table? Well, in that context, when you're eating a meal, you'd lay on your side, and you'd kind of reach at the food in front of you. You might have seen pictures of Lord's Supper where everyone's sitting at chairs at a table. That, That is completely unlike how it was. They'd be reclining uh, this way and that, laying down while they ate. Some of you are thinking maybe that's something you want to do at Thanksgiving. Uh, Go ahead and do it. You're going to be lying down anyway after you eat. But there he's lying down at the table, reclining at the table, eating with his disciples. And he kind of breaks the ice this way. Says truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. There's more than the twelve there. there. There were other followers as well. And as I noted last week, when Jesus makes this announcement, the uh, the followers of Christ, the twelve and the others, they don't say, "Well, of course it's Judas." You know, we, we, he, you know, he was always shifty. It's got to be Judas. Notice their response when he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. One who has had table fellowship with him. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one another, is it high? I think there's a good lesson of humility in the disciples. You know, Peter is all over the place with his humility. I mean, Mark says it's all of them asking. Uh, I imagine Peter's asking as well, but, you know, he he gets it out of the way. Okay, it's not me, so since I'm not going to betray you, I'll never betray you. I'll never turn my back on you. I'll be faithful to the end. We know how those promises went. Went away crying because of a little girl's questions as he called God's judgment upon him, saying that he did not know him. But the disciples have enough knowledge of their sinful hearts that when Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him, one of them at the table, they don't say, it's him, it's him, can't be me. They look at their own hearts and say, is it me? They had an understanding of their sin. They had an understanding of their own innate weakness. We often face danger when we think, oh, I would never do this sin. I would never do this. Uh, Paul would tell the Corinthians, he who stands should take heed lest he fall. 
There's great humility in the disciples' example. I think that this is uh, their highest moment this evening as we're going to see when they understand that there is something in their heart that would make them capable of betraying Christ uh, under the opportune circumstances. They're heartbroken knowing that one of their number is going to betray them and they're wondering if it's themselves. Is it I? Jesus says, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me in the Passover. Uh, you would dip, everyone would dip their bread into like a fruit puree as part of this meal around the same time. So as they're all eating at the same table, dipping at the same time, Jesus says, it is one of the twelve. He narrows it in, one of the twelve who have been faithful followers of Christ since the beginning of his ministry, who have been eyewitnesses of his baptism, of the Holy Spirit bearing witness, uh, coming descending upon him as the Father bore witness, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. One of the twelve that he had sent out to perform miracles, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to proclaim a gospel of repentance. One of the twelve... Not just one of the on and off followers, but one of the twelve is going to betray him. The purpose of this supper is to fulfill all the Father's purposes, as Jesus says. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Other gospel writers would point out that it is a fulfillment of the psalm that one of his friends would betray him. Jesus is fulfilling his father's purpose for him. He is not simply to die. He is to die a death that is a result of betrayal as scripture had promised. This was the definite plan of God. This was providentially orchestrated by God. And yet Judas bears his responsibility Judas doesn't get off the hook just because it was the plan of God that Judas, one of the twelve, would betray him. Judas bears responsibility for the decision he made. Although the Lord knew his nature and knew the decision he would make when he called him to be one of the twelve. It must happen, but Judas bears his responsibility. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There's sometimes debate about Judas' final destiny. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his final destiny is such that it would be better for him to have never lived. But we have no doubt where Judas is. Judas is not in heaven. You know, Judas didn't die and go to heaven and say, Oh, sorry about that, Jesus. Big misunderstanding. My bad. No, if Judas were in heaven, it wouldn't be better for him to have never been born. He died an unrepentant traitor, a betrayer of the Son of Man. And he continues. He transforms this meal that the people of God had been observing for centuries. 
remembering how the Lord had brought them out of Egyptian captivity in the cover of night, how the Lord had spared their firstborn from the destruction of the firstborn. That as morning rose and cries rose out over Egypt, there is a confident trust in the promise of God. We don't observe the Jewish Passover anymore. It's been fulfilled. Christ, our Passover, is come. And we see in the Gospels the institution of the Lord's Supper, the promise of the Lord's Supper, the promise of His Passover. Verse 22, And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body. Now, Mark, as often as the case, uh, gives a much more abbreviated report of what Jesus has said. Other gospel writers, and Paul himself in Corinthians would say uh, that Jesus said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Mark wants to focus in on the significance of the Passover, the breaking of the bread. And unfortunately, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we miss out on this. I guarantee you, in the original Passover that Jesus is celebrating, uh, they did not have those little cardboard flavor white chiclets passed around. You know, here's a plate of whatever this is. Kind of hard to call it bread. They had what was called matzo, a kind of dark bread, uh, many holes in it. You know, they think that that's where Isaiah meditated upon the idea, pierced for our transgressions, and they would break this wafer-thin piece of bread because it was unleavened, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They had to search the house before the Feast of the Unleavened Bread because the leaven represented sin, and uh, they had to represent consecration. And furthermore, leaven requires taking time to rise. We're getting the holiday season. Any of you that bake homemade rolls know that it takes a while to get the dough to rise. And then you've got to punch it back down and let it rise some more. They were in haste in the original Passover. And they were to remember that haste by uh, observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they would break it. Jesus, as he is serving this Passover to his disciples for the last time, uh, would have broken this bread. There probably would have been an audible silence as he's breaking this bread. And what he is saying is that this broken bread represents what's going to be done to him for them. This is my body. He's not saying, as some Christians in later generations, Lutherans or Catholics, he's not saying this piece of bread magically becomes my body, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we understand that we are not eating the literal body of Christ. He's saying it represents what He has done. That we remember when we observe the Lord's Supper that His body was broken for us. That He died for us. It was not for anything that He had done that He was nailed to the cruel Roman cross. It was not for crimes that He had done that He was beaten and scourged and crowned with a crown of thorns. For us. As other gospel writers would record Jesus say, this is my body which is for you. 
And so for centuries, the Lord has given us a reminder. Well, the Israelites would have a reminder of their deliverance from Egypt. We would have a reminder of our deliverance from the power of sin. Christ broken for us, the hope of sinners. The early church and other traditions called the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, which means a, a thanksgiving, remembering and thanking God for what He had done for us in Christ. And as the feast moved forward, it would be a final cup. Mark tells us in verse 23, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He just understood that he was dying to make possible the new covenant. You ever read the epistle to the Hebrews? The argument of the epistle of Hebrews is that the old covenant could never do anything of lasting importance. All it reminded the people of was that their sin still separated them from God. That all the sacrifices they made, even the Day of Atonement when the priest would come in and offer blood uh, in the Holy of Holies, all that reminded them was the way was not open. Jesus has brought a true and better covenant through His death. Jeremiah promises that he's, God was going to make a new covenant with the people, not as he made with the fathers before, but a covenant where we would have the forgiveness of sins, a covenant where all who are part of it would know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And Jesus is saying as he observes this Passover supper and transforms it, is saying that it's pointing to his perfect work. We observe the Lord's Supper when we drink the fruit of the vine, red like His blood, we are remembering that it was His shed blood that allows us to draw near to God. The Apostle Paul would tell the church of Corinth that when we proclaim the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death until He comes. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. There's an even greater promise to this. Jesus has been reminding his disciples that he's going to die. And now as he's woven it into the significance of the Passover, that it has been pointing ahead to his death, that he is going to be the Lamb of God slain for the sins of his people, that he is going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's going to remind them that death is not the end for him. Verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul was getting at when he said, when we observe the Lord's death, we proclaim his, when we observe the Lord's supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. And Jesus' body was broken and his blood poured out on Calvary. That wasn't the end of the story. The disciples might have thought it was. As they had ran away in cowardice with the exception of John, the beloved disciple, they might have thought, okay, it's over. We thought he was the Savior of Israel, but now it's over. He's dead. He's gone. We've got to move on with our lives. 
Jesus had been teaching them again and again that his death was not going to be the end, that there was going to be a great resurrection day, but beyond that there was going to be a triumphant return of the Son of Man. Christmas is right around the corner. We think of his first coming, but when we think of the Lord's Supper, we remember that he's coming again. You know, in many ways... Every good wedding you have, you have that rehearsal dinner. You have the wedding rehearsal, and everyone looks forward to the rehearsal dinner. In many ways, the Lord's Supper is a rehearsal dinner for the greater feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. As we gather together and proclaim our unity and our hope in Christ, what do we do with Jesus' teaching here? We understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, it's not a magical thing where we're sacrificing Jesus again. There's nothing magical that happens with the bread and the wine. What is amazing that happens is that it strengthens our faith and confirms us in what we believe by way of reminder that we proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. The early church, they were much more regular in their observance than many contemporary Baptist churches. I know all Baptist churches aren't the same. You know, they say you get two Baptists together in the same room, you get three opinions. It's true. You know, I've seen uh, pastors argue for one opinion and argue for the other, all in the same uh, conversation. It might be, given the significance that Jesus is placing on the Lord's Supper, then that a more frequent observance would be beneficial. I've heard arguments since I was a young Christian, you know, we don't observe the Lord's Supper regularly, uh, more frequently because it would lose its significance. It would become routine. Now, imagine, you know, going to your wife and saying, you know, I'm only going to hug and kiss you once a quarter because I don't want my hugs and kisses to become routine might lose its significance. Hopefully your wife would look at you with a sense of disgust. Now imagine your wife looking at you and saying, well, I'm only going to cook home-cooked meals for you once a quarter because I don't want you getting too used to them. I don't want it to become routine. We understand that things with deep personal significance, they don't become routine in the doing of them. You know, the problem isn't the frequency, the problem is the heart. You know, near as I can tell, the, the idea of quarterly observance of the Lord's Supper uh, came from uh, times when churches did not regularly meet week in and week out. You know, the frontier days, churches would be lucky to get pastors that could come in uh, once uh, or twice a quarter, and so the, the, they'd observe it as they had the pastor there to observe it. I don't think we could proclaim the Lord's death enough. If, uh, as Paul would say in Corinthians, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, uh, we couldn't do it enough. As long as we remember what we're doing, remembering Christ's body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. And it's greatly unpopular in our day and age, but 
You have to understand who observed the Lord's Supper. Those who were disciples of Christ. Those who were publicly followers of Christ. That has fallen on unpopular ground these days in age. You know, it seems uh, that if you tell someone they shouldn't observe the Lord's Supper because they're not a Christian, some would say you're being exclusionary and offensive. You're actually being biblical and gospel-oriented. Last month I heard a story from Herschel York. Uh, he was telling a, a group of us pastors at a conference uh, that uh, his church uh, uh, was celebrating the Lord's Supper, and one of his church members had brought her sister, who was an unbeliever, who was in a lesbian relationship. Uh, she brought her with her, and uh, as he is explaining the purpose and significance of the Lord's Supper, that it is for believers, she, sister, she looks at her sister, she's, he's saying, I can't partake because I'm not a Christian, and I'm in rebellion to God. And the sisters, yep, that's exactly what he means. That you should not take, because if you take, you are eating judgment onto yourself. And that sister, who is an unbeliever and a lesbian, uh, reached uh, contact to the church because she wanted to have a meeting with uh, Herschel York. And so he met with her the following week, sat down in his office, secretary outside, and he explained to her why from Scripture it was the way it was. Why would you want to even observe the Lord's Supper? You're in unbelief. You're in rebellion to God. And by the end of that conversation, that woman called her partner, broke off the relationship. Dr. York said she, in the office, she called up her partner, said, I have to break up with you. I've fallen in love with a man. His name is Jesus. All because they were faithful in their observance of the supper. We might think that these are minor and unimportant things, but we understand that the purposes of Jesus, he would not teach and do things that were unimportant, especially as his life was passing away. It wasn't the character of our Savior. And so he's, he has given us a picture. The Protestant Reformation, there was a great argument over the, you know, do you have stained glass and sculptures and all that, pictures to teach people? And the Reformer said that the Lord has given us two pictures to teach us what Christ has done. He's given us the picture of baptism. We are buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And he's given us the picture of the Lord's Supper. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. And if we find our churches weak, it might be that we need a greater reminders of this. I, I confess as a pastor, uh, you know, personally, I, I've always favored more frequent observance. I haven't pushed it, but I, I see in the pages of the New Testament, Jesus places a great importance on this. And I believe if Jesus has given us Things to do, we ought to be busy doing them. If he has given us means uh, to proclaim his death and strengthen our faith in him and to remind ourselves of the reality of what he has accomplished for us, then we need every reminder possible. I don't know about you, but I'm a forgetful person. I could set my keys for somewhere and not know where they are and search high and low. Heather will tell you, 
Uh, I am the worst about losing things. And if I lose something, I'm everywhere trying to find it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're forgetful. I could go up uh, to any one of you and probably ask, how many years have you been married? I asked somebody that last night and, you know, I saw the mental math working. You know, if we forget those things that are deeply personal to us, how much more do we forget this? Hopefully, uh, we'll be observing the Lord's Supper in the next few weeks. Be a good reminder for you if you have not found your resting place in Christ that you need to do that before you ever do it. The way to observe the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is to do it as a believer in Christ who's been baptized. As we come to this time of invitation, if you're an unbeliever, the best way you can prepare for that and that you can prepare for the great day of Christ coming because He is coming again. He did not simply die on the cross and go to heaven so that human history could continue on forever as it is. Jesus tells us that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. One day He is coming to usher in that kingdom and I tell you that there will be a far greater judgment than being excluded from the Lord's Supper or eating the Lord's Supper unto judgment in yourself that day if you have not found faith in Christ. You will be ushered out into the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will not be in the kingdom if your faith is not in Christ when He comes again to usher His kingdom in the fullness. You will go to hell. That's the realities that are in front of us. Jesus lived and died. His body was broken. His blood poured out so that we could have faith in Him and have hope and forgiveness. But if your hope and faith are not in Christ, I tell you, you stand under judgment. And either you will draw your last breath and stand before Him in judgment or He will come in your lifetime and you will stand before Him in judgment and you will face eternal condemnation because you have rejected the free offer of the gospel. I tell you, all that you need do right now to have your sins forgiven is freely accept what He has pointed towards in His Lord's Supper, His life and death and resurrection for you. There's a great exchange that happens when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You find that He died for them on Calvary and He gives you His righteousness. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. To remind us of what He has done. He's died for sinners like me and He's died for sinners like you. And all we need do to know the full forgiveness of it is come empty-handed to Him. So as we come to this time of invitation, I ask you, is your faith in Christ right now? Have you come to trust the one whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out, so that you could know the forgiveness of sins? Are you trusting in yourself? Because I tell you, 
If either of those days comes and you're trusting in yourself and what you can do or have done, you will be greatly disappointed when he utters the words, Depart from me, I never knew you. He's coming again to bring the kingdom into its fullness. And either you come in through faith in Christ or you go out into judgment through trusting in yourself. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we can draw near to you in prayer because Jesus has died in our place so that we, through the new covenant, could know you. And we pray during this time of invitation that if there are any who have not come to place their faith in Christ, that they would realize that the one we remember through the Lord's Supper whose body was broken, whose blood poured out so that we could draw near through faith, that He is coming again, and that outside of faith in Him, there is only a fearful expectation of judgment and condemnation. And so I pray that if there are any outside of Christ uh, who hear my voice right now, the, the terrible reality of judgment would awaken them to their danger and that they would come empty-handed to Christ and accept the free gift of pardon that is made possible through His body being broken and His blood poured out on Calvary's hill and Him being raised again for our justification. For this we pray in His beautiful and precious name. Amen.